When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, the Halloween edition. We're talking about episode 44 here of Trick or Treat. This is October 17th for an October 18th issue. I'm Antonia Chen, Deputy Editor of Adult Reconstruction, and this is... I'm uh, Andrew Schoenfeld, Deputy Editor for Methods. Just want to let you know that these opinions are our own, even though if you're tricking or treating, these are definitely our own thoughts that are going out there. This is brought to you by the Miller Review Course. There's both part one and part two. For part two, it really helps you become confident in your oral exams. It's a one-day online intensive course with an option to get one-on-one breakout sessions. Really helps you hone your presentation skills. You can watch some of your peers present and learn from them and their complications, as well as learn your own complications and get feedback from your own peers, as well as getting feedback from all the others around you that are world-class experts in your subspecialty. You'll get the latest updates and advances from recent literature and key papers in your subspecialty. So it really teaches you how to communicate effectively, answer difficult questions, and handle case complications. Without further ado, we're going to start our episode today talking at top of the pile, what's new in shoulder and elbow surgery by Kim, which is permanently free. A look at risk of infection after septic and aseptic revision told in the arthroplasty, a systematic review by Lee. There's also the principles of knee joint preservation, operative treatment strategies by Crutler. What's important, patient voices matter. A place for patient-reported outcomes in medical education by Florentino, which is permanently free. And using artificial intelligence to answer common patient-focused questions in minimally invasive spine surgery by Subramia. Yeah, so uh, in the last episode, we had a chat GPT AI around total hip arthroplasty, Now we have this one on minimally invasive spine surgery, a lot of shared commonalities. We get it. Patients can ask chat GPT common questions and get reasonable answers, but they should consult with surgeons, especially since chat GPT doesn't do the surgeries. That's actually the most common thing that patients ask me when I say I do robotic surgery. They go, are you doing the surgery or is the robot doing the surgery? It is still us doing the surgery. Key factor. Yes and not AI-generated surgeons doing the, doing the surgery. So uh, don't, you know, we, we, we got it. It's on the record. ChatGPT can do these things. We don't need another ChatGPT article about ACLs or bunionectomies or ankle fractures. Like, I, I think we're good. Or mission yeah. accomplished. Left total hip replacements right. versus right total hip replacements. Right. Got it, got it. All right, without further ado, can you please tell us about delays in debridement of open femoral and tibial fractures, increased risk of infection by Cortezidol, 30 days free with a commentary? Yes. So this is a very interesting study. I think everyone should check this out since it is free for uh, the next 30 days at least. 
This study was conducted using the SIGN surgical database. That's the Surgical Implant Generation Network, the SIGN NAIL, Prospective Registry of Fractures, uh, which are uh, administered. That, that implant is predominantly used in low-resource settings. So they have 10,651 patients, or fractures rather, from 61 countries. That in and of itself is, is not necessarily you know, that interesting. But what, what is, is they really do leverage this data set for, for an interesting study around the timing to surgical intervention. So as orthopedic surgeons were, I think, overly wedded to dogma, like these magic time points, uh, eight hours for, for a surgery with an open fracture is you know, this magic number, if it's 759, you're good. If it's 801, it's catastrophic, it's over. And obviously, you're never going to have a study where you're randomizing patients to this patient was randomized to early surgery and you're delaying surgery for someone because, of course, that's uh, nefarious. But this is a natural experiment of sorts where they have a large amount of data. It's a quasi-experiment. They're basically just, you know, meeting these patients where they are at the time that they show up for the surgery. And some of them are showing up early and some of them are showing up much, much later. And they have enhanced statistical power just based on the size of the cohort. And built in with that is the clinical variation in, in sufficient numbers that, you know, you can really get a good appreciation of the universe. It's not everybody is treated at six hours and just a few patients for one reason or the other are treated at, you know, 12 and 24 hours. You're, you're getting a lot of representation and a lot of heterogeneity and variation across the time spectrum. So that's, that's really powerful. And you can tell how, how excited I am about that from a methodologic standpoint. So they use the logistic regression model to adjust for the potential confounders. And what, what they found, I think, is, you know, substantiates some of what we knew all along or suspected, but also, you know, really defies this idea of like this magic time point that as long as you're under this time window, that there, there is, you know, meaningful incremental increases to from basically the very start of the process. The minute there's the open fracture, it's then you're on the clock, essentially. So the sooner you can get to it, the better, but there isn't a magic time point. It's it's sort of an incremental, gradual, and, and somewhat linear. They call it a linear and cumulative increased risk of infection with delays in debridement. And it was basically the probability of infection increased by 0.23% every six hours for type three injuries or 0.13% for type one or two injuries. And, you know, whereas we've discussed these point estimates generally lose their significance when you're talking about incremental increases here, because of the size uh, of the data and the amount of representation that they have across the board, this relationship is probably quite real. And I think this is just really powerful and interesting work. It's unique, as they say, in its ability to analyze time to debridement continuously in contrast to previous methods that are really just sort of making binary, arbitrary, or dogmatic cut points. So I think it reinforces some of our suppositions. It also challenges the dogma in that there's not a magical 8-hour, 10-hour, 12-hour time point. It's basically get it taken care of as expeditiously as possible. And that's what they say in the end, which is, you know, essentially incremental delays in debridement increase the risk of infection. The probability of infection was higher at baseline for higher grade injuries. And there is not a discrete time threshold within which open fractures should be managed to minimize the risk of infection development. You basically take care of these as quickly as you can and then, you know, go from there. 
one of my favorite studies that we've covered in the 44 episodes that, that we've done this. I think this is, you know, has immediate ready practice implications. I just like to commend the authors because what they're working with is super hard and I have nothing to add but praise. So good job, guys. My next study will be a little bit different. I'm talking about patient-relevant outcomes following first revision total knee arthroplasty by diagnosis, an analysis of implant survivorship, mortality, serious medical complications, and patient-reported outcome measures utilizing the National Joint Registry data set. It definitely wins for the longest title by Saba et al. There's a commentary, and it's also permanently free. Getting paid by the word there. Uh, they're, they're making the dollar bills today, let me tell you. So... This is a study looking at patient-relevant outcomes in patients who are undergoing their first revision total knee arthroplasty, and this is using the United Kingdom National Joint Registry with a bunch of linked other databases to get a complete set of data. And they investigated the rate of repeat revision surgery at two and five years postoperatively with the follow-up up to 11 years, the rate of mortality and serious medical complications up to 90 days postoperatively, patient-reported outcome measures, including health-related quality of life at six months postoperatively, and the length of the hospital admission for the index procedures. They looked at serious medical complications defined as acute kidney injury, lower respiratory tract infection, myocardial infarction, deep venous thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, stroke, and urinary tract infection. And they looked at PROMs at five different domains. They mostly looked at the Oxford knee score, which is, they looked at, for example, responder analysis, and they said greater or equal to six versus less than six. And for the health-related quality of life, as expected, they used the UQ5D3L, the three levels. They used satisfaction on a Likert scale and perceived success also on a Likert scale of asking the question, how are the problems now in the hip knee of which you had surgery compared before your operation? Obviously, in this case, this was specific just to the knee. Given that it's a national registry, they had 24,540 patients, and the study was conducted between January 1st, 2009 to June 30th, 2019. Now, the hard part I have here is how they define knee revision. It was any time a component of a total knee replacement was removed and replaced during the study period. And they added two other things during it. One was a secondary patella resurfacing procedure, and that was added on December 1st, 2013, and the addition of debridement antibiotics and implant retention with or without modular exchange on June 25th, 2018. What does that mean? They added secondary patella resurfacing as a revision when Traditionally, in the U.S., a lot of people do resurface the patella, and in, in the U.K., traditionally, they don't really resurface the patella as much. So as a revision procedure, they're not taking anything out. They're just resurfacing the patella, so they're adding something to it, but they're counting that as a revision procedure. So they call that advancement of arthritis versus the debridement antibiotics and implant retention, also known as DARE, is a known treatment for infection. And that's something where you're actually, you know, doing something within the joint for infection. So that one, I do see that as a reoperation, or if you're not changing the components, actually a, re a reoperation, not necessarily a revision. But they lumped that all together in the revision category. And they looked at re reasons for revision as infection, malalignment, aseptic loosening, instability, fracture, and progressive arthritis, which is the secondary patella resurfacing, stiffness, unexplained pain, or other. So not surprisingly, the study found large differences in patient-relevant outcomes among different indicators for the first revision total knee arthroplasty. And I think that there's a lot of studies out there that have shown this. Again, I personally would have excluded patella resurfacing because I don't see that as a true revision. Even UKA or partial knee replacement conversion to a total knee arthroplasty, which normally happens for progression of OA, sometimes for failure of the implant, is a conversion, not necessarily an entire revision of the implant. But that said, everything was included. 
At two years postoperatively, the cumulative index of re-revision surgery ranged from 2.7% for progressive arthritis, which is that patella resurfacing, up to 16.3% for infection. Also, the mortality was highest for revision for fracture and for infection. And the rate for serious medical complications requiring hospital admission within 90 days was highest for patients who had fracture or infection and, as expected, lowest for patients who had progressive arthritis because they had just one compartment that was resurfaced. Now, interesting, they really focus on patient-relevant outcomes, and one of those is patient-reported outcomes. But the PROMS data was only available for 16% of the population. So it was a very small percentage, about 3,845. Well, that number seems high, but this is out of 24,000 patients. It's not a huge number. Patients who had infection, fracture, and progressive arthritis had the lowest proportion of PROMS data available, so they actually didn't report a lot of the information. Interestingly, those who did align, had malalignment and aseptic loosening had the highest proportion of data available. Those who went, underwent uh, revision total knee for infection or fracture had the poorest preoperative function, which is not surprising, and patients with progressive arthritis had the highest preoperative function. Interesting that those who underwent revision total knee for malalignment, stiffness, or unexplained pain had some of the poorest postoperative joint function and the lowest proportion of responders. So if you don't really know why you're undergoing revision, then your outcomes will probably not be great. And I warn patients that ahead of time. They're like, ideally, you're doing it for a reason. Stiffness, I always warn them too, that you may not improve your stiffness after revision surgery. And finally, the last thing was length of stay. So the median length of stay was five days. And the longest length of stay was in the infection group, followed by the fracture group, which is also not surprising. So in conclusion, I didn't find that the findings were that earth shattering. Um, and instead of just reporting patient reported outcomes or just reporting patient relevant outcomes like readmission or hospital stay, they combined the two of them. They use a larger database. But the findings weren't that surprising, especially for non-elective revision reasons such as infection and fracture. Yeah, I mean, it's a... Uh powerful study with over 20,000 patients. Doesn't seem like the findings, at least as far as what you were relating, mostly covering things you're already telling patients. The next article is a latent change score approach to understanding chronic bodily pain outcomes following knee arthroplasty, a secondary analysis of longitudinal data. By Riddle et al., there's a visual summary and a commentary as well. So oftentimes patients ask, if I get my knee replacement, will I feel better? Chronic pain coming from osteoarthritis is often associated with chronic pain in other parts of the body. And we've seen this before. Low back pain associated with hip pain. Oh, associated I, knee I, pain. I tell patients all the time, you should get your knee replaced because it's going to help with your back pain. And this is just reinforcing, you know, you don't love the studies you love are the ones that just reinforce what you're already doing. It's like how a drunk uses a lamppost, more for support than illumination. We covered that in the first episode. <laughs> so we're back at it again. So a lot of time we look at bodily pain improvement in the operated joint, but don't take time to focus per se on the rest of the limb or the rest of the bodies. So previous studies have looked at acute pain in other parts of the body, but not necessarily chronic pain. So the purpose of this study was to evaluate the extent of chronically bodily pain changes comparing preoperative to one year following total knee arthroplasty. This was a secondary analysis from another randomized controlled trial called the Knee Arthroplasty Skills Training for Pain Study, which was a study of surgical recovery for patients with pain catastrophizing and evaluated pain coping skills. Interestingly enough, that study actually showed no difference between groups. So they take the same cohort of patients, this is over five institutions, and said, well, let's find something else out of this. So they did. They looked at it and they included patients who had knee osteoarthritis. They had pain catastrophizing scores of greater than 16 and a primary total knee arthroplasty scheduled for within eight weeks after screening. 
And they looked at four bodily pain measures, which included the whole body, the pain in the surgically treated lower limb, not including the surgically treated knee. And this was broken down into the hip, below the hip to the knee, and then below the knee to the foot. And then pain in the contralateral lower limb that was not surgically treated and low back pain, your specialty and favorite. So these questions were embedded in the fibromyalgia diagnostic screen and knee pain was determined by the Womack pain scale. The presence and severity of chronic pain in 16 body regions were evaluated. I mean, they really broke things down. We're talking low back, neck, upper back, chest, right shoulder, left shoulder, right and left upper arms and the elbows right and left lower arm below the elbows, right and left hips, right and left limbs below the hips, below the knees, and right and left limbs below the knees to the feet. It's very, a lot. Very comprehensive. <laughs> and But again, they excluded the surgically treated knee. And again, this was before and one year afterwards. So they asked that they experienced pain over the last three months, and they rated pain intensity as non-mild, moderate, severe, or very severe from a zero to four scale. Now, they use this latent change score models to determine the extent to which true chronic bodily pain scores change after TKA. And these account for measurement errors and potential causal explanations for change. And the, apparently these estimates are equivalent to observe different scores between preoperative and postoperative measures when outcomes are measured without random error. And they did this in univariate and bivariate analysis. So I'm going to pick your brain about that in a second. So their findings included 367 patients only, and they found the true latent score significantly decreased from baseline to one year postoperatively for all pain outcomes except for low back pain sorry, and pain from below the hip to the knee in the contralateral limb. But the true pain scores for the surgically treated limb did improve. The true pain scores for the contralateral limbs, the contralateral limb also improved, but to a lesser extent, they said approximately 0.2 points versus 0.8 points. There were greater reductions in Womack pain scores, which led to greater reductions in all four bodily pain sites when controlling for latent change in pain catastrophizing. And interestingly enough, low back pain also decreased with each one-point improvement in the Womack score, but the reduction in back pain was less than surgical and contralateral lower limb pain reductions. So there is reduction in chronic back pain. There's hope. Reduction in chronic uh, bodily pain in sites other than the surgically treated knee is an additional benefit of total knee. So get your total knee done and the rest of your bodily pains go poof. There you go. I think that's the line that uh, joint replacement surgeons have been selling for years and years. You're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's a 54% reduction in the lower limb and, and 20% in the contralateral lower limb. Now that that is kind of like, you know, unadjusted, which I think is what you were getting at. And this is not what the study was randomized for. So you have to take the unadjusted analysis with a grain of salt. But it's a very cerebral study and the latent change score is a very powerful method uh, I think methodologically it was well done. I think the findings are interesting and and informative for clinical practice. So thumbs up from uh, Gene Siskel over here. There we go. Siskel and Ebert says, game on. Yeah, two thumbs up. Honorable mention. Scoring <laughs> Who's Siskel? Who's Ebert? Yeah. That's a whole nother question. Not getting into that. Honorable mentions. Is elective total arthroplasty safe in non-genetarians? An arthroplasty registry analysis by Leopold et al. There's a commentary and it's permanently free. This was an observational cohort study using data from the German Arthroplasty Registry that included 263,967 total hip arthroplasties, which because it was such a large database, they had over 1,800 patients who were over the age of 90 who were eligible. So I guess it's safe. It's spoiler alert. totally safe then. So compared with younger patients, the risk of major and minor complications and mortality were significantly higher in patients who were over 90 years old. 
The greatest risk factors for major and minor complications and mortality were congestive heart failure, pulmonary circulatory disorders, insulin-dependent diabetes, renal failure, coagulopathy, and fluid and electrolyte disorders. Mortality increased when major complications occurred. However, mortality rates of non-Egyptianarians in the study population were lower than those in the corresponding age group of the general population. That's called a selection bias, folks. Slight selection bias. So patient selection optimization are paramount. Well, or you just don't operate on the people who have a higher risk of mortality. Since we haven't critiqued too much stuff, I, I just think that, you know, if you're going to do a study and say, you know, what's safe, then how do you define safety? Safe as it feels safe to me. Well, I mean, they're doing it in almost 2,000 nonagenarians here. And I mean, whatever the mortality rates may be, there was still mortality after someone had this surgery. True. Something to think about. So be careful. Take it with a grain of salt. Intermedullary fixation for pediatric femoral nonunion in low and middle income countries by FURDOC. There is an infographic and it's free for 30 days. Evaluated pediatric femoral shaft nonunions in third world countries. And it used the exact same database as before, that Surgical Implant Generation Network Fracture Care International Online Database, and identified all pediatric femoral shaft nonunions that occurred since 2003 and greater than three-month follow-up after their treatment. Our query, their query identified 85 fractures in 83 patients, but only included 57 patients at the end of the day. Much smaller numbers. It was. So it found that pediatric femoral shaft nonunion can occur after both plate and intermedullary fixation in low and middle income countries. The initial instrumentation that went on to implant failure included plate constructs, which was the highest at 56%, non-signed intermedullary nails at 40%, and the signed nails that are intermedullary nails were only 4%. So it does show that intermedullary nails, specifically the signed ones, are effective and safe treatments for these injuries. And finally, posterior lateral rotary instability develops following the modified Coker approach and does not resolve following interval repair. By Daniels, there's an infographic on this. This was a comparison of the modified Coker and extensor digitorum communis or EDC splitting intervals to approach the lateral elbow. There were 10 matched paracadaver upper extremity specimens that were randomly assigned to either the Coker or EDC splitting approach. And the authors found that in this cadaver study, the Coker interval for lateral elbow exposure resulted in iatrogenic posterior lateral rotary instability that was not detectable on the hanging arm test and it did not return to baseline stability, even following repair of the surgical interval. There you have it. Thanks for joining us. And Do you cite like literature in your notes when you talk to patients? Like, Would you be like, uh, you know, we discussed the risk of infection based on the work of Chen and colleagues after total need. Do you do that? I don't. No, I do. <laughs> but it's interesting though. Some patients, and this is a Boston thing, I'm sure, come in with articles. Well, I don't, I don't tell them about the article. I just tell them like the thing and then I'll say in the note. So I think I'm going to be citing the Riddle uh, article in the future Sounds uh, when talking to patients about bodily pain improvement after, you know, I'm like, you should get your knee done. And I might extrapolate it too. I might be like, you should get your hip done too. There's this study that shows that lower pain scores, uh, lower limb scores improve after total. So I might, I might allow a little uh, translational uh, artistic license in the interpretation. So is this a Kaiser Sorce? You no, think it's no, going to no, be quoted earlier, later on? No, uh, it's too cerebral. Okay, so too, too, just for patients. Yeah, just for just just for patient informatics. That's good enough. Perfect. Yeah. I like the sound of it. All right. If you liked what you heard, like and subscribe. Get the notifications. Check out the back issues. If you didn't, thanks for sticking with us for what seems like the longest episode ever. Trick or treat.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.